0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Each year since I've lived in Knoxville, uh, a local theater company, River and Rail, puts on a production called The Unusual Tale of Mary and Joseph's Baby. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Uh, as you might guess from the name, uh, it is a play based on the Christmas story from the Bible. And I mean it when I say this particular production is fantastic, like highly worth going to. If you ever get a chance to purchase a ticket and go, I would very much recommend it. Um, It takes a few artistic liberties with the story, as I think any good art would. Um, But they all seem to add to the biblical story, not take away from it if that makes sense. For instance, there's, there's a scene, one of my favorite scenes in the whole production is this scene where uh, Mary's loudmouth cousin Benjamin accidentally lets it slip to Joseph that Mary is pregnant before he knows. And then he hilariously tries to play it off. It is fantastic. Like, the humor in the play is just so incredibly well done. Very entertaining. There's humor and intrigue sort of threaded and sprinkled throughout the production. Uh, But it also sticks amazingly close to the biblical narrative that we read about in the Christmas story. And one of the things that I love most about the play is how it it really helps to humanize the story. I I think something that we can lose sight of when we talk about and, and read the Christmas story year in and year out as followers of Jesus is that this was something that happened to real people like real actual people, real people that didn't have the advantage of hindsight like we have reading the story today. They, they didn't know how it would all turn out for good in the end, so they had to experience the story as it happened in real time with, with real emotion and confusion and frustration and even fear and anxieties. I think the play, the production does a really good job demonstrating that. And so this week, as we continue in this story and really kick off the story in a lot of ways, uh, I want to do my best to try to continue in that vein. I wanna take a play from their book and I wanna help us not just hear the story of Mary and Joseph and their baby named Jesus, but actually experience the story. Will you guys commit to doing that with me? I think it could be really helpful in our understanding of the scriptures. So that's what we're going to do this morning. If you've got a Bible and you haven't already, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll be, we'll pick it up in verse 18. So Marcus, last Sunday, if you weren't here, uh, he kicked us off in this series by talking about uh, the genealogy in verses 1 through 17, also known as the very long list of ancient names that most of us tend to skip in our Bible reading plans. That's what he covered last week. And this week, we just dive straight in to the story of Mary and Joseph itself. So let's take a look. Pick it up with me in verse 18 to start with. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So stop right there with me for a moment. There are several ideas in that one verse that we just read that we need to unpack for us to grasp what is truly happening in this story. So first, let's talk about that phrase, pledged to be married. It says that she was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Joseph. That refers to a practice common among Jewish people at the time that we might refer to as betrothal. It was a little bit like modern engagement, but much more official in many ways. So basically, Mary and Joseph were already legally married such that it required a divorce to break off the betrothal, as we'll see here in just a bit in the passage. But even though they were legally married, at this point, they couldn't yet live together, sleep together, or or usually even spend much time alone together for an entire year leading up to the wedding ceremony. I should clarify at this point that I'm not advocating for this particular approach to marriage. I'm just informing you of how it worked in this day and age. Just felt like that was important. But during this year, before the wedding ceremony, what would happen is that Joseph would go and he would prepare a home for him and Mary, and then there would be a wedding ceremony where they would come together, in the language of the passage, be officially married, and go and live in the home that he had prepared for them. So so the way that Matthew describes their situation in Matthew chapter 1 means that they are somewhere in that year before the wedding ceremony. That's the point of the story that we're in. And that is where it gets a little bit complicated because we're told that it, it was at that point that Mary was found to be pregnant via the Holy Spirit. That's the language that it uses. She was found to be pregnant. Now, that to me is a very matter-of-fact way of saying what I can only imagine was a very difficult scenario to be in for Mary and Joseph. Joseph. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, when it tells this story, there's a whole scene where an angel appears to Mary and tells her what's about to happen, and she responds with questions and then gratitude and worship. It's like this whole scene that we are privy to. Matthew's Gospel simply tells us she was found to be pregnant via the Holy Spirit. Matthew apparently was just a tad less detail-oriented than Luke was in how he tells the story. So, briefly... Let's address this whole idea of a virgin becoming pregnant. I I think as modern people, we tend to scoff at a detail like that in the story. We hear it and go, really, this story really expects me to believe that virgins get pregnant? I just don't know about that. And I understand the hang up, but at the same time, I would point out to you that the Bible doesn't really expect you to believe that virgins get pregnant. It expects you to believe that this one did, as in just one of them. Do you hear the difference? So so yes, it's an unusual and difficult thing for us to believe, but that's kind of the point of the story. Nobody believed it when it happened either. It wasn't like they were like, oh, cool, virgin is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Got it, that happens all the time. Joseph doesn't even believe it until an angel appears to him in a dream and essentially goes, yeah, my man, I know what you're thinking, but this is for real. That's the Kent translation of the verse, but you guys get the point that gets driven home there? So here's where I'm going to ask you all to think about this story like you're in it and not like you already know how it all ends. So ladies in the room, how about you all go first? Imagine with me, you are engaged to be married to a great guy, but you haven't so much as held hands with him yet, and you certainly haven't participated in any of the typical activities with him or anybody else that would result in a person becoming pregnant. But you've been told by an angel, which apparently is a thing, that you are going to become miraculously pregnant anyway. And pretty soon, your body starts to show signs that you are in fact, Pregnant, And you're about to have to walk around very pregnant in a hyper-conservative society, not to mention a fairly small town where most everybody knows you, your parents, Joseph, and Joseph's parents. And to everyone who asks or stares or shoots a judgy glance your direction, the only answer you will be able to give them is, don't worry, it's from the Holy Spirit. How are we feeling about that particular scenario, if that's you? Excited, exhilarated, looking forward to it? So you see the difficulty of the situation. Men in the room, how about y'all go next? You're engaged to be married to an absolutely incredible woman, but you haven't gotten to be around her much, because you're busy getting your your housing squared away for after the wedding. You haven't spent as much as a singular moment alone with her, but you get together with her, most likely in a public setting, maybe a cafe or something in that particular town to sort of sync up with her on how everything's going and anything that she needs to know. And right after you have your delightful hummus and tea with your betrothed, To be married, you get up to head out and not see her again for a little bit, and she stops you and leans in and goes, "Uh, One more small detail. I needed to run by you. Uh, I'm a little pregnant. Men, how are we feeling about that scenario? Uh, I can tell you one thing that would not be your response. Your response is likely not going to be, Oh, how lovely. I can only imagine that this child is God incarnate who you are carrying by immaculate (laughs) conception such that we will go down in the history books as the parents of the Son of God. How fortunate we are to be in this situation. I'll draw up the birth announcements and send them out to our friends. (laughs) I know that that wouldn't be your response if you're Joseph in this situation partly because I have met human beings before, and I know that's not how any of them would have responded. But the other reason I know that's not his response is because of what comes next in the passage. Take a look with me at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. In other words, Joseph is headed for the door as far as this relationship goes, just like anyone would likely do. But notice in those details that we were just given, he is going to go about it compassionately towards Mary. We're we're told that he is, quote, faithful to the law, but also that he didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace. So here's what all of that means. If a man like Joseph found out that his wife-to-be was unfaithful to him, which at this point in the story is everyone's assumption, there wasn't really an option for him to just forgive her and continue on with the engagement. That, That wasn't really how it works. Jewish law required him to get a divorce, which, remember, was necessary to break off the betrothal. And additionally, if he knew that she was unfaithful to him and he didn't divorce her, Roman law at the time actually said that Joseph could be tried in court himself for exploiting his wife as a prostitute. So this is a high stakes situation for Joseph. It's not just, do I forgive her for the suspected infidelity or do I not forgive her? That's not the question that he's dealing with. It's, do I make my life a living nightmare because of this pregnancy, or do I do the very normal expected thing and break off the relationship? That's the question. What most men would do in this situation is they would take their future wife to court, they would have her legally charged with adultery, and make a big to-do out of it all. If successful, it would publicly shame her and her family, and all but guarantee that she remains single for the rest of her life. But, the story tells us, Joseph did not want to do that. He did not want to, quote, expose her to public disgrace. In other words, he was going to do what the law required, divorce, but he wasn't going to do it publicly or maliciously. He was going to do it quietly and privately to spare her any unnecessary shame. I think that tells us a lot about the type of person Joseph was. But even those plans of Joseph's are about to be interrupted themselves by God. Take a look with me at verse 20 in the passage. But after he had considered this, meaning after he had made these plans to divorce her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, the angel tells Joseph that Mary was not unfaithful to him, She's in the process of being faithful to the calling that God has placed on her life. The calling to give birth to the Messiah, the long-awaited king and deliverer of God's people. And because of all of that, the angel says, Joseph should not be afraid. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you are needing to tell someone else not to be afraid. I am the father of a six-year-old and a three-year-old, so I'm in that situation about four times a day per kid. And here's what I've noticed about the situations where I have to tell my kids that. If I am telling one of them not to be afraid, it's usually because they're currently afraid. That's how that works. Or bare minimum, because they are entering into a scenario where they are very likely to become afraid as a result. That's generally the only reason I would give them that warning. So it seems like if Joseph is being told not to be afraid, it's because the thing that he is being asked to do by God might be in fact fear-inducing, right? Continuing in a relationship where there is suspected infidelity or bare minimum assumed infidelity by everyone else around them putting himself in social and legal jeopardy by not going through with the legally required divorce. Mary having to navigate the stares and the whispers and the judgment coming her way at nearly every moment that she's out in public and people recognize her. And on top of all of that is just the normal amount of fear and anxiety that comes with becoming parents for the first time. I know many of you have been through that and you know It is no small thing, right? There's inherent fears and anxieties that come to mind just with that. And then imagine doing all of this in a hand-to-mouth society without many of the modern luxuries that they have. They didn't have baby brezzes and like baby monitors and all of that stuff back then. It was a hand-to-mouth society. So to put it mildly, there are quite a few things in this scenario for Mary and Joseph that could be generating some fear or bare minimum some anxiety, right? But the angel tells them not to be afraid, and here's why. Look with me at verse 21. Remember, this is still the angel speaking to Joseph in a dream. Here's what he says. She, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you, Joseph, are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people From their sins. So, a little bit of background here. Uh, The name Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew, literally means God saves. That's what the name Jesus means. Which means that Matthew's sentence here in Matthew chapter 1 is actually a play on words. Translated into English, it would sound something like this You are to give him the name God saves because he will save his people from their sins. But when you read it that way, you realize that this sentence has a bit of a pronoun problem. Namely, who does he refer to in that sentence? Who is going to save exactly? God or Jesus? Is God going to save or is God saves going to save? Do you see the issue? The answer is what? Yes. You guys have heard me ask ambiguous questions before. The answer is yes. God will save And also, God saves, Jesus will save, because they are one and the same. So here we have Matthew, for one of the first times in his account of Jesus' life, giving us and alluding to the true identity of Jesus. Jesus is God who has come to save his people from their sins. So sometimes I've heard people say stuff like, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God when he was alive. Christians just made that up through the years to try to consolidate power for themselves. I hear people say that a good bit. The problem with that is that it's in his very name. Matthew says, This child is God saves. Jesus is God saves. And just in case that idea was ambiguous at all from the name Jesus, it becomes even clearer in the next verse. Take a look with me there, verse 22 in the passage. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So some people ask because of this passage, does Jesus have two names? Like is it like a first name, middle name type situation or like a double first name, those are cool, right? So his name was like Jesus Emmanuel Joseph Christ or something like that. Like does Jesus have two names and which one is actually his name? So best we can tell these are not actually two names that Jesus was given when he was born. Jesus was the name he was given Emmanuel, in verse 22, is an editorial note from Matthew, the author, about something that was true of Jesus. In Isaiah, if you're interested, Isaiah chapter 7, I believe it is, there's a story where God's people are especially nervous that God has forgotten about them, that he's abandoned them, but as a sign that he has not forgotten them. God says that a woman in that place at that time will conceive and give birth to a son and will name that child Emmanuel. In other words, that child born at that time will be a way of God guaranteeing that he has not forgotten his people and that he is still with them. So Matthew takes that detail from that story in Isaiah and he applies it to the situation with Jesus. He says, just like how that child was a sign that God had not forgotten his people, so also this child born to Mary is a sign that God has not forgotten his people, except this time there's an added layer to it all. This time, not only will the child be a sign that God is with his people, this child will be God with his people, as in God in the flesh. So this is one more suggestion by Matthew that this child Jesus is in fact God himself. Now, here's what's interesting about all of that. We don't even know if Mary and Joseph understood all those layers of meaning behind Jesus' names. In fact, there's a pretty good chance that they didn't, at least not fully at the time. But what they did know was that there was something unique and different about this particular child. They knew that God himself was somehow involved in this whole process and that this child would, on some level, be a significant part of God's plan to save his people from their sins. And because of all of that, the angel says, they shouldn't be afraid to move forward with their plans to be married and to have this child. I think that much, at least, Mary and Joseph could have pieced together at the time. So look at how they respond to all of it, continuing in verses 24 and 25 in our passage. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave, he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph wakes up from his dream, he goes and does exactly what the angel told him to do, he goes forward with their plans to be married, and just as instructed, he gives this child the name Jesus. Joseph took on, in other words, the the shame and the ridicule that came with marrying a woman, carrying a child who was not his. He he took on the disgrace that came with it that he did not have to take on. Mary herself took on the judgment and the glares and the accusations that would inevitably come towards her as a result of this whole process that she did not deserve. And they both did all of that because this child born to them was a part of God's plan to set things right in the world, to save God's people from their sins. So with all of that unpacked, let's take a step back for a minute and ask the question, what does this story mean for you and me? All of this happened a very long time ago, a very different time and place than the one we currently live in. And to my knowledge, none of us are currently pregnant with a miracle baby via the Holy Spirit or being asked to marry someone who is. So that said, what could a story like this about Mary and Joseph and Jesus possibly have to teach us today as followers of Jesus? I think that is a question worth asking. Here's at least part of how I would answer the question. There is a myth floating around out there that if you listen to God, obey God, trust God, that if you do all of that, God will see to it that your life goes swimmingly as a result of that. As a result of that decision, he'll make all your wildest dreams come true, he'll give you the house and the car and the job and the spouse, do things God's way, some people will tell you, and you'll get everything you ever wanted in life and more. Follow Jesus and he'll see to it that you never, ever, ever, ever regret it. He'll take care of you and provide for you in all the ways that you want and expect to be cared for and provided for. That is a wildly popular message. And why wouldn't it be, (laughs) right? It sounds fantastic who wouldn't want to tap into the idea of god as some sort of cosmic vending machine where you put in the money and you get exactly what you want as a result that that sounds incredible to be honest with you but here's the problem with that understanding of god it's not accurate and i could give you plenty of examples proving why it's not accurate but i'll just give you one from the story that we just read Here in Matthew chapter one, we have an unwed husband and wife who, by all appearances, are God-fearing, God-trusting kinds of people, and yet God is in the process of blowing up their entire life, at least their life as they saw it going, right? And and not only is their life not going to go the way they thought it would, it's going to go in many ways precisely the opposite of how they thought it would. Not only is their life not going to go swimmingly, for the next couple years at least, it's going to go quite horribly. We're going to cover the rest of the story in the next three weeks, but I'll go ahead and warn you, scorn and shame from their friends and neighbors is just the beginning of troubles for Mary and Joseph. By the end of the story, they are fleeing into the night desert with their two-year-old because an evil king wants him dead and is willing to kill an entire village of kids just to make sure that it happens. So this is not Mary and Joseph's best life now, right? Far from it, in fact. Their lives are being completely upended by this particular situation. From from a quiet, run-of-the-mill existence in the countryside to becoming the talk of the town in all the worst ways. From establishing a life on their own to living life on the run for several years to flee from an evil dictator from upstanding members of their society to having their reputations permanently marred as a result of this whole scenario, life as they planned it is in shambles. And none of this stuff happening to them is incidental to the story. Not at all. In fact, most of it is a direct result of them doing what God told them to do. Their difficulty, in other words, doesn't happen despite their obedience to God. Most of it happens directly because of their obedience to him. They are taking on hardship that would not exist if it wasn't for them saying yes to what God asked them to do. And you know, the scriptures make it fairly clear that if we decide to follow Jesus, we likely will experience some of the same things that they did. Your life could be upended too. My life could be upended too. Our reputations in the world could suffer too. In fact, look with me on the screen at 2 Timothy chapter three, verse 12. This one is the most plain way I can think of that it says it in the Bible. Indeed, all, how many people? All. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. On a number of occasions, the Bible actually tells us that if you want to follow Jesus, your reputation will suffer as a result of it. Some people will choose to dislike you and even malign you, possibly hate you, not just in general, but as a direct result of your decision to follow Jesus. Now, real quickly here, just for clarification, as we have mentioned before here on Sundays, None of this means that we as followers of Jesus should have a persecution complex, okay? So so it doesn't mean we should cry persecution every time the world doesn't exclusively cater to Christians, like the boy crying wolf in the story, right? And, And it doesn't mean that we should go out and seek persecution and just be jerks to people and then justify it by saying, well, God did say that people would hate me, so I guess I'm doing something right. If you want to be jerks to people, do that under your own name, don't bring God into it, okay? So so none of this means that we should assume there is always persecution even when it's not there. But, and this is important, and is probably gonna become more important with every year that goes by for followers of Jesus, all of this means that we should not be surprised when we encounter a loss of reputation people thinking a little bit less of us, or even opposing us as a result of following Jesus. That is to be expected. Jesus told us it would happen. It will happen to us, just like it happened to Mary and Joseph in the story. So here's my point with all of that. Sometimes it may be that certain aspects of your life go better because of your obedience and trust in Jesus. Sometimes it plays out that way. But if you are following Jesus because you think that sort of optimal experience is guaranteed, you might wanna reconsider. You might wanna dive into the scriptures a little bit more. You might wanna see the type of language that it uses to describe the experience of a follower of Jesus because I don't think it would use the word optimal to describe it. And because there is a story of a faithful man named Joseph and a pregnant woman named Mary who would be glad to tell you that that's not always how it goes. Do not decide to follow Jesus because it will go well for you if you do. Follow Jesus because it's worth it no matter how well or how poorly it goes. So knowing all of that, here's the other question I want to answer before we're done. What would make all of that worth it? What would make that type of experience worth it? What could possibly motivate a a young Jewish man and woman to endure their lives being upended like this in the story? What in the world could motivate millions of followers of Jesus down throughout history to endure experiences like this one? And and maybe more specifically for us, why in the world should you and I, as followers of Jesus, endure experiences like this? What could possibly make those types of experiences in the world worth it for us? Here's what I would tell you. Here's how I'd answer that question. It's in the names. It's in the names. The answer for what could possibly make all of that suffering, all of that negative experience worth it for Mary and Joseph and for you and I and for followers of Jesus across the globe can be found in the names that the angel gives Joseph for the child that is going to be born to them. Let me explain. Remember, there were two names, right? Jesus and Emmanuel. Let's look at each of those in turn. Jesus. So Jesus, as we mentioned before, means God saves. It means God saves, as in this child who was in Mary's womb would be the means by which God would save his people from their sins. Now, that was significant to Mary and Joseph in their own way. But think about the added significance for you and I in today's society. You and I know the rest of the story if we're followers of Jesus, right? We know that the way this child will, quote, save his people from their sins is that he will go to the cross where he will take on the sins of the world on his very shoulders. As the Apostle Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus himself would be despised. He himself would be rejected by men. He too would be held in low esteem by the people around him. Mary and Joseph wouldn't be the last ones to endure scorn and shame and glances from people around them. Their son would experience the same thing, only in far greater measure. And Isaiah 53 actually tells us that Jesus would do that because it was our shame that he carried. It was our disgrace that he bore. It was our punishment that crushed him. It was our transgressions that pierced him. The way Jesus would save his people from their sins is that he would allow himself to be swallowed up by those sins and then he would swallow up it all in victory. So listen, if if you personally have ever endured disgrace that you did not deserve, Jesus has been there too. If you've ever had your reputation marred unfairly, Jesus has been there too. The book of Hebrews actually tells us that it's fitting that Jesus would suffer in order to save us because then he could identify with us in our suffering and we could identify with him in his. He suffered on our behalf, which means he can grant us the ability to suffer well. And so we get to know that we are not alone in our suffering, not at all, which leads us to the second name of Jesus, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God with us. Specifically, it was the name given to a child in Isaiah to assure God's people that he had not forgotten them, that he was with them, that he would not abandon them. You know, I think one of the most difficult things as a follower of Jesus, one of the most difficult parts about suffering is that fear in the back of our mind that we've been forgotten, that, that God doesn't care what's happening to us, that, that he's indifferent to our pain and our struggle, that, that he's sort of just left us out here to fend for ourselves, It's that fear in the back of our mind that nobody is coming to save us or to help us. But I hope we see this morning that the name Emmanuel in the Bible tells a completely different story than that. The name Emmanuel tells us that whatever else is true of us, one thing that cannot be true is that we've been forgotten. One thing that isn't true is that God has abandoned us. The name Emmanuel tells us that God of the universe, crowned in glory and splendor from eternity past, that that God was not too good to suffer. He was not too good to put on flesh and blood. He was not too good to come and live with his people and to suffer alongside of them and then to demonstrate to those people once and for all that they were not alone, that they had not been forgotten and that they never would be forgotten. So that God sent his son, born of a virgin, to a man and a woman who no doubt would suffer. Would suffer tremendously, in fact. But they would suffer because this child, his his life, death, and resurrection would one day make it all worth it. So listen, I, I don't know what you came in here this morning dealing with. Your life might feel like it's going pretty great right now. Your life might, in fact, be going swimmingly at this moment. And if that's you, great. Good for you. But I will tell you, things will not always be that way. And I want you to know that in the moment when the worst happens, when the bottom drops out of your life, in that moment, you will have a Savior who is Emmanuel, god with you. Maybe you're here this morning and it feels like the bottom has dropped out. Everything is in shambles. Nothing in your life is the way that you wanted it to be. Everything feels like it is falling apart apart in this moment. And if that's you, I want you to know that you have a Savior right now who is Emmanuel, God with you. And if you're here this morning and and your life is somewhere in between, not awful, but not great, I want all of us to know this Christmas that we have a God who is Jesus Emmanuel. God with us to save us. And I'm telling you from experience that if you know that about God, it may not fix everything in your life that you want fixed the way you want it fixed. But it makes a world of difference. And in fact, knowing that is even better than having a vending machine God who gives you exactly what you want. Because sometimes the things we want are the worst things for us. So this Christmas, I want us all to know we have a savior who is Emmanuel. God with us. We're going to head to the tables here in just a bit. Take communion together. If you're a follower of Jesus, I cannot think of a more fitting way to remember these two realities about who Jesus is. When we take of the bread and the cup, we remember that, God, that Jesus is God, saves, that he gave up his very body and blood so that we could be rescued from our sin. And when we take of the bread and the cup, we remember that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he did all of that so that you and I could know definitively that we will never be forgotten. And so we invite anyone who's a follower of Jesus during the next few songs to come up and take communion as a celebration of that reality. If, if you've never taken communion before, you wouldn't have said walking in here this morning that that was true of you. Uh, maybe this morning you feel like he's doing something in your life, and maybe you want to take communion for the very first time and say, I want to follow him because he's worth it. If that's you, we would love to talk to you about it. Feel free to stop us after the gathering and, and talk more about it, but we're super glad that you were here this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond.